Everyday grocery store items like bananas, chocolate, coffee, these are global commodities. They pass through a lot of people's hands on their way from the fields to your grocery cart. This is the stories behind our food podcast, the podcast where expert guests share insider knowledge about every step along the process. I'm Danielle Robidoux. And I'm Kate Chess. And we're your hosts. Danielle and I are here today with Christina Liberati, who administers grants that support farmer cooperatives as they improve their quality, productivity, and financial stability. Christina deals with an astonishing variety of people, small-scale farmers in a number of countries, plus agronomists, tasting professionals, folks who work for the U.S. government, and more. And all of these people are working toward the same goals. Let's hear more about how that works. Thanks for joining us, Christina. Thanks for having me. Your job is clearly very complicated. How would you explain to a stranger what it is that you do for a living? Well, I'll start with my job title. I am the Grant Projects Manager at Equal Exchange. So um, what does the Grant Projects Manager do at Equal Exchange? Uh, There's really kind of two scenarios. Um, One of them is your average come to the office, write emails, the usual, have meetings, Um, And the other scenario is I'm in the field visiting with farmer cooperatives and um, supporting educational workshops or giving workshops. Um, All of this is related to managing this grant project that we have. Can you tell us about the scope of the grant? Yes. So it's actually, um, we, we have in the past had more than one grant, but the one that I'm referring to mainly is the USAID, so that's the U.S. Agency for International Development Cooperative Development Program. So it's a multi-year project where um, we applied for funding to do special projects with our farmer cooperative partners um, in three countries originally, Ecuador, Peru, and Dominican Republic. And um, we work on lots of different activities related to strengthening our cooperative partners. Is there anyone else involved in this besides Equal Exchange? So USAID has many different funds, um, one of them being the Cooperative Development Program. And within the Cooperative Development Program, we were one of nine uh, grantees. So some of the other grantees include the Lando Lakes International Development Program, Um, another group called uh, National Cooperative Business Association, um, specifically their arm that does international projects called CLUSA. Cool, yeah. That sounds like so much. It's kind of hard to wrap my mind around. What is it like, I guess, we can all imagine sitting in an office and answering emails. Some of us might do that ourselves. But what's it really like? Can you describe what it what it's like when you're visiting producers in Ecuador or Peru? Sure. Uh, well, first, Ecuador and Peru are, are fairly different, but sure, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my mainly an, a, a project activity would involve, um, you know, flying down there and that always takes longer than <laughs> than you'd like to think, but um, oh, depending on where you're going, it'll take one or two days to get to your destination. Um, and at this point, you know, we've had such great relationships with our cooperatives that we can kind of call them up and say, I'm arriving at the airport at this time. Will you come pick me up? 
And um, they're great about that. Usually pick us up. We go visit the offices of the cooperative and say hello. And one thing you kind of forget when you work in a U.S.-based office is um, physical contact is almost uh, discouraged. But if you go to Latin America and you are saying hello to someone, especially if you haven't seen them for a long time and you don't do the kiss on the cheek, it's actually offensive. (laughs) So um, there's a lot of kisses and hellos and how are you and this time of year, happy new year. That Happy new year will last at least till like February. And then uh, usually there's some kind of meeting scheduled if uh, they have a a processing plant, say if I'm going to visit um, Norandino in northern Peru, they have a coffee processing plant. Um, We usually kind of tour the plant a little bit or do a little walk around as things change. Um, We've worked on project activities to implement, um, you know, kind of uh, new kinds of laboratory equipment in in a co-op like Norandino, and so want to see how it's working. Chat with staff about how it's going, say hello to folks, and then um, sit down and have meetings specifically around what was your work plan for the project this year? How's it going? How can we support you? Is there anything we need to troubleshoot? Then you usually go for a nice leisurely lunch uh, in a place like. Uh, where Norandino is, ceviche is the most popular lunch. And, um, you know, that's also, it's a working lunch. You kind of continue to update each other on what's going on. We try to provide as much information as we can about what's happening on the U.S. market side or with equal exchange changes that are happening here. And then uh, oftentimes you will have a field visit either the same day or the following day where you go visit with individual farmers and Again, it's a, part of it's just going there and sitting and having a chat and some FaceTime <laughs> and, uh, you know, accepting graciously whatever fine beverage they offer you. <laughs> um, in Peru, sometimes it's chicha, which is a fermented corn drink. Yeah. Um, I was recently in Paraguay, and they offered us terere, which is a kind of herbal concoction that they serve cold and you drink through a straw. Um but the generosity of our farmer partners is always astounds me, and they they will give you anything they have, um, and a lot of times they have beautiful fruits and things from the farm that they offer you as well. And then um, you know, if we implemented specific project activities with that farmer, we talk about that. You know, if they tried, uh, you know, a new pr- uh, compost or um, went to a workshop around how to Im- improve their um, pest management of the bugs that were eating their crops. So we, you know, we talk about that and how how it went and what they what suggestions they might have. Um, so that's that's in a nutshell. That that could repeat itself over a couple of days. And sometimes I go and we do workshops. I have a workshop coming up in Peru to um, train more people in a capitalization. Um, education program curriculum that we have so that we can offer that education program to more cooperatives in the future. That's such a great picture of a sort of daily process of what this might be like. Thanks for that. Uh, Just like as a basic 101, what is a producer co-op in the context of Latin America? Yeah, so Again, Latin America is pretty large, and producer co-op could mean a lot of things. <laughs> My experience is mainly with coffee and cacao small farmer uh, 
producer co-ops in Peru and Ecuador and Dominican Republic. So, uh, but given that, I think there are some generalizations we can make. Um, the most essential function that these cooperatives provide is purchasing the raw product that the farmers are are producing. And a lot of times they're aggregating it and um, providing a service of uh, post-harvest processing, they call it. So taking the raw product and turning it into a semi-finished product for export. Um, so in the case of cacao, for example, it needs to be fermented and then dried. And often you have better quality control uh, if you do that for many farmers at once versus the farmers doing it individually. So the co-op serves that, that function. And also they're the ones out there looking uh, for international markets and clients and you know that they serve as the face of the farmers in the kind of international market um, at the same time also they invest some money back into the co-ops and services for the farmers sometimes that takes the form of like a health campaign where they have an ophthalmologist come and fit people for eyeglasses and or um, it, a lot of times it involves them hiring uh, agricultural technicians to go and support the work on the farms on a daily basis. Just Those are just some small examples. I have a question specifically on scale and how big some of these cooperatives are. I know um, you work in a few different countries and kind of what's the range of how many families are in each cooperative and I don't know if you have any opinions on like is there a too big or what's like the right size for how many um, family farms are in the cooperative um, or what your thoughts are on that. Yeah it's a really interesting question. I work with cooperatives that range from a couple hundred producers up to almost 10,000. Wow. And there are... Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> yeah, it's a big one. <laughs> Although in, you know, there's a cocoa co-op in um, Ghana that has, I think, something like 80,000 members. I mean, it's just wow. massive. Um, so it makes uh, some of the 10,000 member co-op look, look small. I wouldn't say that there's a, a right or wrong answer here. I think that each scenario provides different um, challenges and also different benefits. So when you're really small, oftentimes the cooperative is like a tight-knit family, for mm -hmm. better or for worse, right? And so, <laughs> yeah, and it makes sense. Like, you love your family, but you need a little space from them sometimes. Um, <laughs> and in those scenarios, often if you are introducing a new technology or a new idea, it'll be adopted by everyone pretty quickly. And that's, as long as it's a good, you know, piece of information, that's a good yeah. thing. Um, on the other hand, there can be a lot of, like, infighting and politics that the organizations don't always mature to the level where they can handle that. And so I think you have a lot of vulnerability at that size sometimes. Um, they also, you know, might not be able to access the same kind of markets that a larger co-op would because they just aren't producing at a scale that some clients find efficient to buy from. Yeah. But, you know, there are successful co-ops at every size, I think. And the larger co-ops you're able to they often develop into multifunctional businesses. So they'll have an arm that does Part, uh, processing, like they might have a uh, factory where they turn the cocoa into cocoa powder. Uh, they might have their own bank or credit union that serves the members, but also the rest of the community. 
Um, and, and the challenge with those large cooperatives I've seen is they often lose contact with their membership. And so that's risky also. It's sort of the opposite of a tight-knit family. You just have this loose aggregation of folks that it doesn't really matter to them that they are a member of this particular co-op. It's just the one that's everywhere, you know. Right. It doesn't feel personal anymore. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. To talk about individual farms now, the farms that make up these, or the farmers that make up these producer co-ops, one of the aims of this program, it sounds like, focuses on quality. What are issues about quality when we're talking about organic farming? Yeah, I think issues with quality can can range from organic to non-organic. Um, some of the challenges specifically with quality for organic farmers are um, they can't use the same chemicals to combat like insects and different diseases that um, conventional farmers are able to access. And so sometimes they can be much more susceptible to those things. And that will, of course, affect your quality and your productivity. Um, On the flip side, I think Organic farmers tend to have more diversity of of product and of uh, crops within their farm, and that, from a you know flavor perspective and a varietal perspective, is usually a, a benefit. And so, um, you know, I work in part in, in kind of like the specialty cacao uh, area and you have more um, diversity and interesting flavors that can come from organic farms usually than a conventional farm. And that's a generalization, but... When you say diversity, you mean like they might be planting more than one varietal of this of cacao or mm-hmm. different kinds of things other than cacao as well, or... Both, yeah. And, and cacao has thousands upon thousands of varieties, and it's one of the most complex foods on earth in terms of variety of flavors. Um, I think they, there's like 6,000 aromatic compounds. Wait, might be 600. <laughs> Don't That's quote me lot. on that. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah um, it's up there with wine and coffee and uh, those other products that people really like to savor and look for flavor notes. And um Having a different varieties of cacao on one farm can give you more complexity of flavor, and also other crops are going to interact and uh, have an impact on what people call sometimes terroir, which is the taste of a place or a unique flavor of a product. I've heard that before, referring to other kinds of products like wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is are farmers, is this sort of coincidence or is this something farmers are deliberately working to develop? Often it's just a circumstance. You know, you inherit a farm that's got a mess of varieties and um, it can be a challenge because if you don't know, you know, what those, what the potential is of those varieties, it, you know, what good is it to you? And also in terms of farm management, sometimes the trees aren't planted in rows. They're just kind of scattered all over the place. They've been pollinated by who knows what. And um, you have you don't know exactly what varieties you have. So it can be messy, but if you know what you're doing, you can really um, benefit from, from that diversity and complexity. 
people on the consumer end and certainly people in the middle, people who are buying these commodities, have sophisticated ideas about what qualities are desirable or what tastes delicious or what can get the most money. Are farmers included in those conversations? Um, you know what? Can, we talked a little bit about wine a second ago, and that is is a crop where farmers are very often included in those conversations. Um, the products that Equal Exchange works with, and as of yet, we don't work with wine, but someday maybe. <laughs> Here's to um, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, n- the answer is no. Um, farmers aren't always included in those conversations. I'd say coffee has come a really long way in that aspect, and Equal Exchange was really a pioneer in that movement to include farmers in conversations about quality and my um office mate is the green coffee buyer and she was just uh looking at hundreds of reports of quality analyses that they've done in our lab here that she's bringing down to peru to talk to the farmers about next week so um, this is very much an ongoing thing and in cacao it's been a, a a lot slower that development but it's it's happening now and uh, I'd like to think our project has played some part in that. Yeah. What are what are the advantages, just to break it down, why would a farmer who's really good at growing plants need to know how the finished product is going to taste? So a product like cacao, is, the price is generally determined by the New York Stock Exchange and not by the quality of the product that they're offering. And having some knowledge about the quality of your product gives you a, a voice and, and power in negotiations around its value in a way that um, many farmers typically have not been um, included in before or given before. So how does it work? How do they, how do they get included? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, I think uh, first and foremost starting to ask the question, you know, Oh, I didn't know I, you know, that there was more than one price for cacao. Um, I, our work has focused on in the project, uh, really collaborating with some of the star co-ops in our supply chain who had already made some advances in this area to um, generally work at the co-op level. But we uh, worked with Cho Chocolate in San Francisco to uh, install little mini factories, which we call the Cho calls flavor labs, at the cooperatives so that they can process small amounts of the raw or fin- uh, the fermented and dried cacao beans into chocolate or with or without sugar. Um, that's the way that most chocolate makers evaluate the quality of a product and make decisions about whether or not to buy. But many farmers had never even tasted their own beans in chocolate form. And so... Wow. <laughs> I just want to stop and yeah. think about that. That's crazy. Yeah. It's, uh, it is a little bit mind-blowing. <laughs> um, so just even the kind of leveling the playing field with the tools that are available was, was a huge step. And then from there, it's really sitting down at, at the table and tasting together um, and, and Cho and Equal Exchange and our farmer producers um, got together a few times a year and we're tasting um, chocolate or unsweetened chocolate together and trying to see if we were coming up with similar flavor characteristics and qualities. And 
from there, developing written um, documents that would help people speak the same language when they were um, discussing their results. So we worked together on a tasting form for cocoa. Um, and you know, related things to help people have have a universal tool to look at and speak of the same language. Yeah, that's really inspiring. It's easy to see how that can make a big difference. Can I ask one question? Um, just thinking about some farmers for the first time tasting their own chocolate, is there any kind of funny experience that you can think of of a reaction to that in you know, folks being excited or, wow, I didn't know that, you know, what I was growing could, you know, how it tasted. I don't know. I'm just interested in that, like, kind of reaction that they might have had to tasting their own chocolate for the first time. It seems like it could be really cool. Yeah. You know, um, it's really fun, but in fun in the way that looking, I've, I've been, I've been a participant in tastings like this also, but often what we would advised the co-ops to do or they came up with this idea on their own was create a a chocolate an unsweetened chocolate made from beans that were processed really badly Mm -hmm. (laughs) and one that was processed really well and right away the farmers can tell the difference in the flavor and the quality it's often you know a, a fermentation changes the flavor dramatically and it reduces the bitterness and astringency of the cocoa. And so if you don't ferment properly, you taste that right away and you just want to spit it out. Um, So, and and, and on the other hand, a really good cacao that um, is processed well, even without sugar, is going to taste really nice. And so I've I've been at workshops where they offer, you know, kind of a, a... a good example and a bad example, but they don't tell you at a yeah. time. And the faces on the, of the participants are just kind of priceless. And um, I, yeah, I've seen that many times, to be honest. Yeah. But um, it's a it's a really great educational tool. And I know that some of the farmer co-op quality managers have taken the beans from a particular farmer back to that farmer and said. You, you know how you're uh, harvesting all those underripe pods? Yeah, here's what you're giving us. And we can't sell this to clients um, or we get penalized for it. And um, once they taste it, they understand. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> kind of going off of that, um, in regards to this project, how much of it is kind of producer-led? Um, and do you kind of feel as though small-scale farmers are either – represented, underrepresented in the scope of this? And um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, uh, occasionally we get together with other grantees from the Cooperative Development Program. And every time we go to these meetings, people are kind of astonished by the by the way our project seems to work. And I'm always astonished by the way their projects work. But they're like... <laughs> you give the money directly to the co-ops and then they do the work. <laughs> I'm like, right. well, what are you doing? <laughs> this is the cooperative development program. Um, a lot of them work through third parties or consultants to deliver services to the co-op, but never deposit the money directly to the co-ops themselves. Hmm. But I think we have the advantage of working with co-ops that are developed to the point where they're able to export. I mean, they're they're fairly sophisticated in the world in the co-op world. Yeah. Um, and 
but we also trust them and they, you know, we have the good fortune of them often trusting us. And so we establish a very clear work plan and a very clear budget and then we make deposits and then they have to send us receipts on all those deposits and if they don't, they don't get another disbursement. They also know that it that their performance on the grant affects the commercial relationship and, and our, um, you know, if they do really poorly on the grant, it's not going to necessarily um, damage the commercial relationship, but it's not going to improve it either. So we, we don't, we don't uh, use one to leverage the other. That's not what I'm trying to say, but it's, it's like uh, engaging with a family member on a business project. If one thing goes poorly, then the other it's one It's going to be awkward at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Right? Exactly. <laughs> yes. Well, well spoken. Well spoken. Um, so I think, I don't know if that answers your question, but um, it's, I would say yes, it's, it's very much producer-led in the design, in the execution, um, and the ownership and one one statistic I can give you because we were just evaluating our project um, is I don't know many times when people look at what charity to donate to they look at how much goes to overhead <clears throat> mm -hmm. and I actually calculated that Equal Exchange has taken of a hundred percent of the funds um, available to us three percent to execute this project and ninety seven percent of the wow. funds went directly. Um, to the co-ops or services that directly benefited the co-ops. And so I think that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I just, just asked that question. I have an international relations background, and a lot of times that would be something that folks were concerned about, people just kind of going in and having their perspective telling people how to do things, but having a different energy around it saying, no, actually, you know, this is, it's important for the involvement to be producer-led and having feeling that, that feeling of ownership and control over, over your own project. And um, that changes the energy behind it to me, but. Yeah. You've also alluded to the fact that we're talking about very different countries here, something in, <laughs> that's going yeah. on in Peru with, you know, cacao is going to be different from something that's going on in the Dominican Republic. Um, is, do people in the cooperatives decide what's important for their specific group? Yeah, I, I mean, it's kind of a balance, right? Sometimes you learn about something that's going really well, and you want to be able to share that with with a cooperative that's having a different challenge, even if they're in a different space. But it, wherever possible, we try to have the producers tell those stories directly to other producers, rather than saying, well, in you know um, Uzbekistan, I saw they did this and you should try this. You know, it's, it's very different than bringing someone from Uzbekistan together with someone from, um, Honduras to share that experience. And yeah. Cut out the middleman. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it just, it has more impact if it, if you hear it from someone who you can relate to, um, in their experience and goodness knows they don't grow any cacao in Uzbekistan yet. Um, <laughs> but that said, like producer co-ops around the world, uh, tend to face some similar challenges. Or, I mean, and we even find we have similar challenges as Equal Exchange, the worker co-op, with some of our producer co-op partners. Like, how do you get people to run for the board? How do you get them educated to run for the board? This is a question that I see here, and we were just talking about it today, actually. Yeah. Um, and 
it, we're, I'll be talking about it with a producer co-op, the banana co-op in Peru that I'm visiting next week. Uh, same problem. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Even thinking about having a cooperative that's geographically dispersed and trying to still honor that connection of the members together and how that can be more challenging as cooperatives grow. And I know that's a problem that Equal Exchange has that, you know, I, you would kind of alluded to before talking about the different scale of the... Yeah, big co-ops that don't see each other that much where farmers might feel isolated or less connected. Makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. 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 Can you talk about information sharing? That seems to be an mm-hmm. ethos of this program. Yeah, I would say it's an ethos of equal exchange too. I and I my colleague Beth Ann Casperson, who I think did a previous podcast, which everyone should listen to, <laughs> um, is is really uh, such a proponent of this. And you know, in the coffee world, equal exchange has shared a lot of information about how we roast or how we. Um, work with our partner co-ops. And that philosophy, I think, works its way into many things that we do, including this project. And so one area I already highlighted was trying to have producers share information with other producers. So we organized over 15 different co-op exchanges through the previous project, um, bringing together all of uh, representatives from all of the co-ops in their project to talk about specific issues related to quality, productivity, or uh, financial management of the co-ops. And kind of thinking, taking a step back, thinking about timeline and, you know, originally the pro- project was supposed to be five years and it's kind of had three extensions, right? So that's a huge difference in the longevity and creating a long-term relationship Um, how have you been, because of these extensions, how have you been able to see some of the impact of the project directly? And if I can jump in, what's next? Yeah, (laughs) sure. Uh, the, the extensions of time were kind of a blessing and a curse. I mean, you, when you think (laughs) you, you plan for a five-year project and then it turns into eight, sometimes you're running out of ideas or, you know, it's, at what point do your uh, teammates from other co-ops go and work on other things. But on the plus side, I would say, you know, trees take a long time to grow. So, mm-hmm. um, and cocoa trees planted from seed will take about five years to mature. And ev- so if you start right away on a productivity project, you may or may not see the results at, at the end of your project term. And this project has allowed us to really see some of those developments in the productivity um, you know, we did a, a bunch of what they call model farms, so, um, you know, kind of demonstrative farms within certain areas of the co-op that do all of the um, improvements to the farm, and they are supposed to serve as, as a model for their neighbors. At those uh, model farms, the productivity went up by you know, on average, in some places, like 496%. Wow. <laughs> um, and so being able to Worth see it. that, yeah, <laughs> is really satisfying. And then you're able to really share that knowledge. And and I think with this extension of time, we've been able to much more kind of systematically and intentionally create records and tools that we can then use going forward and that hopefully, you know, in the spirit of sharing are available on a wide scale to whoever finds them useful. Um, All of these are 
products that we've created or tools, resources are actually on the EcoExchange website. So feel free to check out the cooperative development page. If you're planning to start a cacao farm <laughs> or... Yeah, or you want to learn how to taste chocolate um, with a... All right, of, you're speaking my language. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what's next? Uh, EcoExchange applied for and received funding for another cooperative development project that started in 2018 and will go to until 2023 or 2026 or who knows. Um, Depending on how many extensions yeah, this time around. Yeah, that has to do with um, government not knowing how much money to allocate at a particular time, something that the shutdown uh, is highlighting. Maybe they could use some financial management training. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Uh, thank you so much, Christina. You've yeah. been awesome. It's really Thanks. fun to talk to you and learn about what is going on. Yeah. Thanks for chatting. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Stories Behind Our Food, a podcast by Equal Exchange, Inc., a worker-owned cooperative. Love this episode? Please subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Be sure to visit equalexchange.coop to join the conversation, purchase products, and learn more about small-scale farmers and the global supply chain. This episode was produced by Equal Exchange with hosts Kate Chess and Danielle Robideau. Sound engineering provided by Gary Goodman. Join us next time for another edition of The Stories Behind Our Food.